You are listening to a recording of the launch of Medex's latest report, False Positives, the Prevent Counter-Extremism Policy in Healthcare. The report launch took place on the 2nd of July 2020. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Dr. Mayura Deshpande, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at the Southern Health NHS Foundation Trust and Chair of the Ethics and Professional Practice Committee at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Rosalind Comyn, Policy and Campaigns Officer at Liberty, and Dr. Tarek Yunis, Lecturer in Psychology at Middlesex University. We hope that you enjoy the podcast. So firstly, my name is Rima Buhaya, for those who don't know me, and I'm the Peace and Security Campaigner at MedAct. As many of you will already know, MedAct is an organization that works with health workers to do research and evidence-based campaigning to challenge the root causes of global and public health inequalities. We work on issues ranging from climate change, peace and security issues, economic injustice and migration. So in my particular role as the peace and security campaigner, I support health workers to raise awareness and take action on the health and socioeconomic impacts of war, armed violence and weapons and arms, and as well as their geopolitical root causes. So I think some of you may be thinking, well, that sounds very different to kind of the prevent duty. Um, But just to explain, we began working on the prevent duty in health services because of a lack of kind of popular awareness or much popular awareness of the duty's existence in the NHS, even amongst NHS staff. Uh, We had a few members actually coming to us with concerns about the duty and its effects in health services. So we believe that it fit well, it fit within our interest in shifting conceptions of security to a more sustainable and health focused understanding. And some of you may already know there's kind of a body of work around what sustainable security is and what human security is and advocacy to move to shift society towards that understanding and eventually then to shift like legislation and, you know, policy to encompass that understanding of security. So it's, an, it's also an issue that clearly mirrors in some way our work on access to healthcare for migrants. Um, so with counter-terror and immigration policy being embedded into health services, and it also requires health workers to identify certain people either as ineligible or eligible for free care in the NHS, or in the case of counter-terror policy, in the NHS as potentially you know susceptible to being drawn into terrorism which I'm sure someone will give a better definition of the prevent duty um, later on but just kind of briefly the prevent duty is in place in all across all public services in the UK that requires public servants essentially or people within those public services to identify people at risk of being drawn into terrorism But as I said, I won't go into this too much now because our speakers today are much more knowledgeable about this and also will be speaking about this at length. So with that in mind, I'm really excited. We've got a really great panel of speakers today. So I'm just gonna introduce them. We've got, as I said, Dr. Hilary Aked, who's who's the author of this report and MedAct's research manager. They're a writer and investigative researcher with a background in political sociology. We've got Dr. Tarek Yunus, who is a cultural and critical um, clinical psychologist and currently a lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University. We've got um, Dr. Mayura Deshpanda, who's a psychiatrist and deputy chief medical officer 
at Caldegot Guardian and Southern Health NHS Foundation Trust and National Speciality Advisor in Secure Care um, and, in, and in NHS England, NHS Improvement, works in NHS England, NHS Improvement. She's also um, lead at the, um, as part of the Ethics Committee of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And finally, we've got Rosalind Common, who is a policy and campaigns officer at Liberty, where she leads work across policing and counterterrorism. Before joining Liberty, Ros worked at Rights Watch UK, where she conducted research, advocacy, and strategic lit litigation on counterterrorism and post conflict justice. So, yeah, you've got all of those speakers up there. And we've got now, I think 100 people have joined us today, which is great. Um, more might join later. And just wanted to give some technical points before we start. So if you are having any technical problems, please do write into the chat box and my colleagues, Ayan and Ben, who are here today, will help you out. Um, we're going to be moving on to the question and answer session for the final half hour of the webinar at around 7 p.m. If you do have questions that kind of come up while the speakers are talking, you can write them into the Q&A box. So I think, yeah, you should be able to see the Q&A box right at the bottom of your screen. Um, and just so you know, if you want that question to be asked anonymously, you don't want the question to be read out with your name, um, there should be an option to that you can check or tick that says send anonymously. Um, and finally, the talks and the Q&A will be recorded. Um, but as I said before, if you want to ask a question, but you don't want your name to be recorded, um, you can actually choose to send the question anonymously. Um, so I think with that in mind, we'll start. So we're going to start off with Hilary, who, as I said, is the author of the report that we're here to discuss today. So take it away, Hilary. Thanks, Reem, and um, just want to give a big shout out to Reem and the rest of the Medic team for making this whole project happen as well. And thanks to the rest of the panelists and thanks to everyone for um, for joining tonight. Um, it's nice to see some familiar names in the in the list. Um, <clears throat> I've only got about ten minutes, so I'm going to kind of whiz through uh, the findings. But first of all, I just wanted to take a moment to um, to situate preventing the NHS um, in terms of the kind of wider um, political landscape at the moment. Um, so it's kind of stating the obvious to say that we're having this event and publishing a report in the middle of a pandemic. And that pandemic has obviously thrown into stark relief um, racialized health inequalities in this country and around the world. And also, and my colleague Reem mentioned this at the start, um, we've seen how um, securitization of healthcare, not just prevent, but with um, the hostile environment, migrant charging, um, really harmfully deters health-seeking behaviour. That's become really obvious at this time. And, and Medac put out a report about three, three or four weeks ago um, about that. The second, obviously, kind of, I think, really important bit of context is that we're seeing the Black Lives Matter movement um, around much of the Western world. That is, you know, um, especially in the States, obviously, like one of the biggest uh, mobilisations for racial justice um, of a generation. And it's doing much more, obviously, than saying merely, you know, black people should not be killed by police. It's actually mainstreaming, highlighting and mainstreaming um, the need for alternative conceptions of security. 
And, and again, we mentioned this at the start, um, but I just wanted to add, I think, you know, prevent very much chimes with that wider abolitionist um, movement. We can see it as part of the prison industrial complex, including, you know, um, policing, surveillance, criminal justice system. Um, and, and, and I'll talk a little bit about the recommendations at the end, but, um, you know, one of the key ones is that um, prevent doesn't actually keep us safe and that we need to reallocate funds away from this was essentially a surveillance program towards holistic evidence-based public health policies, real public health policies, um, because prevent is sometimes misleadingly called a public health policy and um, towards um, things that actually um, create a safe society, mental health services, youth services, etc. And also I just wanted to observe that it was about this time um, that the original independent review of prevent should have been reporting to government. Um, many of you will know that that collapsed after the government appointed someone who was, um, has long been an advocate of prevent. He was challenged um, by judicial review, removed them and now have yet to appoint an independent review. So basically don't hold your breath for um, the government to, um, to act. So that was just um, setting the scene. If I could have the next slide, please, Ian. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And I'll get into, get into the specific findings. Um, what I'll talk about is um, the huge levels of variation we found in um, prevent, prevent referrals across NHS Trust and also what we're calling false positives. Um, and that's um, referrals which do not turn into channel interventions. And I should say um, that when we call them false positives, um, we don't mean to indicate that people who are referred to channel are guilty of anything, they're still innocent of any crime. The difference is that in, in law, um, police or local authority must have reasonable grounds for suspicion of some, you know, something. And, and in all other cases, even the police don't think there is. Uh, I'll talk about mental health impacts, racial and religious impacts, confidentiality. And then I want to talk briefly, I'll just mention some of the case study details, because obviously that's super important. And then I'll, I'll, I'll say what the kind of headline conclusions and recommendations of the report are. Um, can I have the next slide, please, Ian? Thanks a lot. Um, so you won't be able to see these two graphs very well, but you can go and look at them in the report. Um, on the left-hand side uh, is a sample of, we FOI'd about 77 NHS trusts and prevent priority areas, and I think we got data from about 41. And on the left-hand side, you can see um, the numbers of referrals across two years combined and ordered uh, by the top referrer. Um, and you can just see that the huge levels of variation. Um, so the one at the top is um, Camden and Islington NHS Foundation Trust, and that had um, a whopping 98 referrals across two years. Um, and then down at the bottom, many had zero within two years. And by the way, this doesn't map onto, you know, um, just the size of the trust. There's other stuff going on um, to do with sensitization to levels of prevent, you know, how hot they are in the training there. And we speculate a bit in the report. We haven't found anything too solid on that, but certainly with Birmingham and Solihull Trust, there's some quite compelling evidence as to why that might be. But I haven't got time to go into it now. On the right-hand side is a, a, a chart which took, it shows um, false positive rates. So that's um, by NHS Trust. So that's um, the green bar is all prevent referrals. Then the orange bit is, oh, sorry, I'm just go back to that one. Yes, one, thanks. The, the orange bar are those which also then went to channel consideration and the red bit is they were then given channel like well they call it support but they you know they were put on the channel program and consented to be done and just the thing to highlight there is that those two big bars there those are two 
again from Camden and Islington, that actually had 98% levels of false positive referrals. Um, okay, moving on. Thank you. Um, uh, so in terms of the mental health impacts, I mean, our headline finding really is that prevent referrals can harm physical and mental health of the individuals concerned and of their uh, families as well. And it can do this in multiple ways. Um, I'll talk a little bit about case studies. You can read the case studies in the report. Um, prevent referral can really damage therapeutic relationships and that sets back recovery, uh, it interrupts care. And actually we found in some cases uh, medical professionals told us they believed that um, prevent referral and the trauma and the stress associated with it had actually triggered mental health problems in individuals with no prior psychiatric history. And um, in addition, um, patients choose to disengage from treatment as a result of the kind of um, mistrust that's generated by being referred to prevent and treated as a suspect terrorist. Um, and, we, and, we, and we didn't find uh, solid evidence of a wider deterrent effect, but certainly we, we found that health workers were concerned about potential for that. Um, secondly, um, we kind of interrogate in the report, the government says explicitly that it believes that people with mental health conditions are more likely to be drawn into terrorism. And we kind of interrogate the evidence for this and find that it's really not robust, despite about 40 years of empirical evidence. Um, and we don't believe policy should therefore be premised on it. Um, some health workers in our study were very concerned that this claim would merely um, worsen pre-existing stigma that people with mental health conditions face. Um, and uh, another another key point about mental health is that we raised some like uh, some serious ethical concerns about a little known project called the um, the vulnerability support hubs scheme, which you won't have heard of. Um, but um, what it does is it embeds NHS professionals into counterterrorism police led projects um, because of this this commitment, essentially ideological commitment to the belief that um, there's this close link between mental health and terrorism. So people are. Who are, who are very likely have mental health issues being treated as, as suspect terrorists and being brought into contact with police when the vast, vast, vast majority of them really probably just need care. Um, and we think that's really harmful. And finally, people with mental health conditions are disproportionately referred. If you can go on to the next slide, Ian, we'll show you some tables. Um, so the top table here, table three, is um, referrals from four mental health trusts on the left-hand side. Um, versus 18 non-specialist or generalist NHS trusts on the right-hand side. And you can see that, for example, in 2017-18, um, the four mental health trusts had more referrals than the 18 non-specialist trusts combined. Um, table four beneath that um, digs down a little bit more into those 18 generalist trusts. And what we found is that actually um, quite a significant number of their referrals were from their mental health departments. So again, we haven't put specific figures on it, but we think it's very clear that mental, people with mental health conditions are disproportionately referred. Um, can I have the next slide, please, Ian? Thank you. So moving on to issues of race and religion now, um, this uh, pie chart, these pie charts um, show you the um, data we got from, we only, only 10 NHS disclosed to us data on ethnicity and faith. This shows you the breakdown. You can see that uh, Caucasians and Asians are the biggest groups in both 
cases. And if you show the next slide, please, Ian, um, we'll see a similar pattern where Islam and Christianity are the biggest religious groups um, in the world. But to really appreciate disproportionality, um, obviously a, a pie chart isn't very useful. So um, we did some um, uh, race disproportionality ratio calculations. And if we move to the next slide, uh, what we found was when you take the, you know, the amount of uh, Asians, and amount of Muslims in the population, vis-a-vis uh, -vis non-Muslims and non-Asians um, into account, uh, Muslims were actually referred to prevent eight times more than non-Muslims, and Asians were referred, reported um, four times more than non-Asians. And if you look at the methodology we use, it's actually a really conservative estimate. Um, but we, we thought that was safer. Um, moreover, our qualitative data indicates this disproportionality is very likely to be, at least in part, a result of discrimination. Um, one key factor we think is going on here and that I think Tarek is going to talk very eloquently about after me, I think, is um, the racial bias that's inherent in the very definitions of um, extremism and in the radicalization assessment tools underlying prevent, um, which we talk a little bit about in the, in the report. Okay, um, can I have the next slide, please? Thanks, Ian. Just moving on to like a few comments on confidentiality. This is a slide that a anonymous health worker sent to us. Um, and you can see that this is a form of prevent training, um, e-learning program. And it says, uh, if you suspect that an individual is being groomed for terrorist activities, to whom would you discuss your concerns? Grammatical issues aside, you can see that the three correct answers are your line manager, your trust prevent lead and your trust safeguarding lead. And the vulnerable adult themselves is not a correct answer. So, you know, what this is, uh, as the health worker told us, what's this effectively saying is do not speak to the person concerned about your, about your, your, your suspicions. And in effect, you know, do not ask for consent. So it's actively discouraging consent seeking. And if you just click onto the next slide for me, Ian, thank you. Um, yeah, we mentioned this in the report that some that some, uh, some prevent materials actively discourage consent seeking. And also another critical point is that they fail to distinguish between quote unquote vulnerable patients. And we go into more detail about definitions of vulnerable and this tautological definition of vulnerability to radicalization and patients lacking capacity. And that is a really critical issue when it comes to, if you're ever justified in, um, thanks Reem, two more minutes. Okay, it's a critical issue if, um, you're ever justified in making a non-consensual referral, but that gets completely lost with prevent. And what we found is there's just widespread confusion about confidentiality around prevent and about whether it's um, a so-called safeguarding program or public protection. Uh, many referrals, many, many referrals happen without consent, unsurprisingly, probably. Um, and we also finally concluded that prevent, because it doesn't deal with imminent risk, non-consensual referrals can never rely on a public interest justification. We don't think there's really any great areas here. Um, prevent is a long process that you go through where you may be referred to channel and you may be considered for channel mentoring, they call it. And so if it's that kind of long-term, you, you're not really posing an immediate risk and you're not, um, your public interest justification isn't gonna be there. If a public interest justification is there, it's not really a prevent case. Okay, next slide please, Ian. So just before I end, I'm gonna to touch on some case studies because obviously the lived experience 
of people who um, are referred under this programme is really vital. It's something we tried to centre at MedAct. Um, yeah, this is just like the, how The Guardian covered the story today, um, the mental health angle they went with. Um, they mention one case in which a psychiatrist um, referred an extremely paranoid and unwell schizophrenic man and on reflection told us that he believed that this has damaged the development of a trusting relationship between the patient and his care team. Um, in another case, a GP referred her acutely depressed and psychotic patient to prevent before mental health services, even though she admitted she did not believe the patient posed a threat. Um, and in the third case, I think I've mentioned this already, um, there was some evidence that preventive foes could even trigger mental health problems. One GP told us about a schoolboy, a teenage boy, um, with no pr previous history of mental illness, who developed obsessive compulsive disorder as a direct result, he believed, of the trauma and anxiety caused by his school referring him to prevent. Now, what the Guardian didn't mention is that all these cases are um, BAME uh, Muslim males. Um, so I just wanted to stress that. There was something else I was going to say about case studies, but I've forgotten. Oh, yeah. It was just that um, you don't often hear about these from health because of confidentiality and because of the shame and stigma that's often attached to being referred. So it was tricky to come by, but please do read the case studies if you read anything in the, in the rather long, admittedly, report, because some of them are really shocking. Uh, last slide. Thanks, Ian. And then I'll wrap up. Um, we believe that prevent referrals can really damage people's physical and mental health, um, as well as their families in multiple direct and indirect ways. Um, and so we think prevent may actually harm the vulnerable rather than safeguarding them as the, as the government says. Um, and these negative impacts are felt disproportionately by already marginalized um, minority groups. So we need an intersectional analysis that takes into account um, ethnicity, faith, mental health at the same time, because these are compounding variables. Um, and because of that, we think prevent risk exacerbating pre-existing health inequalities and that is why that MedAct uh, has calls in, a, calls in a report for the prevent policy to be repealed in healthcare. And I'll leave it there. Thanks. Great. Thanks very much, Hilary. Um, yeah, it's a, it is a lengthy report, but it's definitely worth your time reading. Um, and you can pick out the chapters that you are most interested in as well. So um, yeah, definitely recommend it. And Hilary did a great job on it. So. Um, just to say, we've got around 115 people in the call now, which is great because we actually extended our Zoom <laughs> like capacity, especially for this meeting, so <laughs> glad to see it was worth it. Um, so next up, we're going to have Tarek Yunus speak, so just take it away, Tarek. Great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, I just want to take a moment to uh, really congratulate Hillary and Reem and the entire MEDAC team for, uh, for publishing such a fantastic report. And, you know, I can, I can definitely attest to the difficulty and the challenges in, in researching the prevent um, policy. So really, it's, it's a fantastic job. And I think everyone who's listening, if you haven't, you have to take some time to read the report. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about racism. Um, and I think it's important to, to explain why. I'm going to just really explain and sort of define racism. I think first, if we're honest about addressing racism, we can't really tackle that what we don't understand. And second, 
the reason why we really need to define and explain what we mean by racism is because we also have to acknowledge that there's there's enormous political and institutional force in misunderstanding racism. Unfortunately, much discussion on racism uh, in healthcare often revolves around individual individual prejudice. Uh, and I would say, of course, I don't think that's by chance. However, one of the ways that scholars uh, have conceptualized racism is by thinking through social conflicts, especially those moral panics involving uh, national security, which makes certain bodies more apparent than others. So if you take the examples of social conflicts like the war on drugs, the war on illegal immigration, the war on terror, groups are racialized and their bodies are made more apparent accordingly. Now, if you enact a policy on these social conflicts like stop and search in the war on drugs or hostile environment in the war on illegal immigration or prevent in the war on terror, you're in, you're in effect institutionalizing a racist policy in accordance to that social conflict. In the war on terror in particular, we know very well in research that the threat to the nation, the idea of the threat to the nation is racialized to Muslims and Islam in the British public's imagination. And insofar as a racist policy is then enacted in the NHS, it legitimizes the, the racialization of people and the racial discrimination that results. Now that doesn't mean that a white person won't get caught in these social conflicts but rather that their bodies alone are insufficient to conjure that threat associated with that social conflict. Hence, we speak of white innocence. Again, I really just wanna emphasize this. Just because a white person is caught in stop and search or referred through prevent, that doesn't disprove the racism in a policy. And often people who make this argument really only reveal how ignorant they are of how racism operates. So one of uh, my main arguments that I have outlined in my research, um, which I, I think prevents, uh, sorry, uh, MedAx report really, uh, really accentuates, is that the government is well aware that Muslims are racialized in the as the dominant threat in the war on terror, and that therefore they also recognize that prevent is racist. In turn, what they're doing, they're constantly performing these colorblind acrobatics. And colorblind, colorblindness is really a key concept, I think, in 21st century racism, whereby the significance of race is either diminished or erased completely in, uh, in social interactions or policies. Um, and the, the, the purpose of colorblindness really is to be able to evade the charge of racism. And there's two ways um, which I think are really significant in the way that uh, Prevent is constantly performing this colorblindness. So one of the ways is that there's this recognition, there is a recognition prevent training that Muslims are associated with the threat of terrorism. And in turn, we see slides, if anyone has gone through prevent training, you'll see slides where it's like, you know, name three, four factors of what, um, what, what might be an indicator of someone who's vulnerable to radicalization. It would be like isolation, sadness, anger, and attending a local mosque or you know, I mean, if we just hold on to that one, the purpose of that slide is that in a way they're, they're trying to denote that, oh, you know, you might have some sort of association, some sort of commonsensical association um, between Islam, Muslims and terrorism, but that it's wrong. And if you don't even want to take it from slides, if you go through, uh, I've, I went through numerous prevent trainings, people will also say it verbally, you know, they'll say like, 
um, is radicalization, is a vulnerability to radicalization putting on a headscarf? And then they'll be like, no, it's not. So what you see is this constant raising and erasing of race. Is it attending the mosque? No. Is it putting on a headscarf? No. It's this performative, this very, very um, performative version of colorblindness that's, that's off, it, it can almost be boiled down to please don't be racist. Don't look for signifiers associated with Muslims and Islam. Um, in this, they might also emphasize the far right and remind people that white people can also be terrorists. Uh, but this really just adds to the colorblind performance in which really racism is constitutive of the war on terror, first and foremost. So that's one of the ways in which uh, prevent training itself both recognizes and erases constantly um, the significance of race. But the second one, which I think is really important in terms of this report, is that prevent training is simply chock full with all, this, all these unsubstantiated claims and, and statements of like just sheer psychology talk. And my argument here is that mental health actually and psychology really serves as one of the most, one of the more um, substantial colorblind strategies, I think, in racial conflicts today. Uh, when, when we speak very broadly of people's vulnerabilities, which Prevent does, um, you know, they're going to be highlighting isolation, sadness, anger. It not only erases the centrality of race from the discussion, but it also makes then all vulnerability suspect, leading then to th those racist referral rates of people with mental health uh, issues, um, which uh, many of whom haven't made any sort of ideological statements whatsoever uh, that Hillary had mentioned. So this not only worsens mental health outcomes as we've seen, but you know, again, as Hillary mentioned, this, is, this now directly implicates uh, access to mental health. You know, I think for me personally, ever since people have been learning about my work, you know, I've seen many Muslim men and women uh, come to me who's, who are simply now requesting for mental health services that are not securitized. And you, know, you gotta think about that, that's really, really gutting because I can't simply tell them like, okay, now go, you know, just go to the NHS and don't worry about it. I think uh, what was really striking is I recently got a, a Muslim male young adult who was asking um, for a psychiatrist who's politically safe. So he wasn't even asking for uh, a Muslim psychiatrist or, you know, an ethnically matched male, uh, psychiatrist. You know, we're past ethnic and religious matching now. Policies like Prevent really have ushered a new era where the determining factor in, in finding help and support are, is based on those who are complicit in systems of oppression, of which a racist policy like prevent is an example. Which then always then begs that question, what can be done? Um, and incidentally, I always like to mention this, you know, I happened to be part of an email correspondence once with the designers of online prevent training. They sent this new module to a bunch of Muslim NHS professionals asking them if it's discriminatory. You know, and I had to tell them, well, if you're asking the question to a bunch of Muslim professionals, then yeah, you know, it's probably terribly racist to have the public refer pre-criminals based on gut feelings. You know, it doesn't matter what you have in your slides, just the very fact that you feel like you have to double check on that is indicative of something. So if the issue with institutional racism then is less about individual prejudice and more about policies which legitimize commonsensical prejudice on really like a very paper thin, see it, say it, sorted type of logic. Then we also have to note the unconscious bias training and diversity 
really have very little to, to remedy uh, in this regard. And as uh, Sivanandan said in 1982, you know, dismantle institutional racism. Don't ask me to give you racial awareness training. You know, we need a change of policy and a serious interrogation of the war on terror and not just better training to make people feel better about themselves with a certificate at the end. And I think I'll just end on that. I think that note that, um, that Hillary had mentioned as well, um, which I think is very significant. I think given that the UK police budget is one of the highest in Europe, and now there's this re revitalized uh, and very legitimate discussion right now that's happening on, on defunding the police. I really wanna emphasize that prevent and counter extremism and all these pre-crime strategies, they are not alternatives to policing. They simply relegate the problem of racist social control elsewhere, which in neoliberal societies like the UK is just by responsibilizing the, po the population to police themselves, which of course still occurs on, under the uh, austere gaze of the state. I think, again, we need to demolish these racist institutions and policies. And I think uh, in 2020, and we're, we're truly done with all the window dressing that comes with, uh, with training and diversity. Thank you. Great. Oh, you can maybe hear my alarm going off. <laughs> you were just on time, Tarek. Um, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, we've got a few questions in the box, so I'm glad to see that. I think your talk raised a lot of questions. So. Um, just a reminder that you can actually um, put your questions in the Q&A box, which is just at the bottom of your screen. Um, and yeah, thanks very much, Tarek. We're going to now hear from Mayora. So Mayora, if you would like to begin. Thank you very much, Reem. Um, and, and thank you to, to everybody really who's worked on this report and my fellow panelists. Thank you for inviting me to speak now i've read with enormous interest this this report and i'm very struck by a number of its findings and conclusions it's very thought-provoking if not deeply troubling uh, clearly because of my professional background as a, as a as a forensic psychiatrist i'm i've paid particular interest to the findings relating to the interface of prevent with mental health and the impact on mental health uh, so i'm going to start by just talking about the royal college of psychiatrists uh, position statement, which was published in 2016. This is called Counterterrorism and Psychiatry, and this can be found on the college website. Uh, so this position statement represents a review of all the available evidence at the time. And I think it's fair to say the evidence hasn't moved on significantly since then, uh, and also had input from mental health patients and carers. Uh, so this report basically concluded that terrorism is, as you can imagine, a complex multifactorial and polymorphous area that the prediction of any future event but especially the prediction of risk to others and within that the prediction of the risk of future terrorist acts is extremely difficult and highly likely to be inaccurate uh, and that the use of any tools designed to predict such risks must be subject to proper scrutiny and evaluation the position statement goes on to remind psychiatrists that their primary duty is as ever to their patients and that they must act in the best interests of their patients at all times. It also recommends, not surprisingly, further research and cautions against jumping to conclusions about causal relationships between mental illness and violence, or indeed between mental illness and the risk of terrorism. 
in addition to this position statement to aid psychiatrists, uh, the College Ethics Committee, which I chair, also wrote additional guidance on ethical dilemmas that psychiatrists are likely to encounter in dealing with prevent in their clinical practice. This is a supplement to the position statement and is also available on the college website. So when we did this piece of work some years ago, and we've gone back and looked at it uh, several times since, what we found, uh, we, we found a number of key areas where psychiatrists were likely to encounter ethical uh, dilemmas or considerations. And these are very similar to the ones described in this report, actually. Uh, so I'm going to touch on a couple of them briefly. Again, not surprisingly, the first area of difficulty that we identified was the impact on a psychiatrist's duty of confidentiality towards their patient. Now, I know this is entirely um, known to everybody. Uh, confidentiality is a critical component of the doctor-patient relationship. It's enshrined in the General Medical Council's good medical practice. It's in the Royal College of Psychiatrists' good psychiatric practice. Um, etc., in, and in several other documents besides. Now, clearly, the duty of confidentiality in clinical practice is not an absolute duty, and we can, and we should, and we do breach it in the interests of public safety or in the interests of safeguarding. However, disclosure, when we breach confidentiality, must be necessary and proportionate, and where possible, with the individual's consent, or at least their knowledge, if consent isn't possible. It's also far easier to justify breaching confidentiality where the risk to others is clear, it's highly likely, and it's proximate. Now, what we found is that when confidentiality is breached in the, in the, in the act of reporting an individual to prevent, these conditions are usually just not met. And psychiatrists find themselves under pressure, or could find themselves under pressure, to breach confidentiality based on either tenuous or vague information or even sometimes just a hunch. This is ethically deeply, deeply troubling. Clearly, as one can imagine, this leads very quickly to an erosion of trust in doctors, and then by extension, trust in the health service. Um, that risks itself increasing stigma, and then that discourages the very people who need mental health services most from accessing them. Now, the other area I want to mention is that of risk assessment. This was an area that the college spent quite a lot of time thinking about both the group that worked on the position statement and the ethics committee. Uh, psychiatrists, mental health services, clinicians who work in our services, we all do risk assessments all the time. But as numerous scientific studies and reviews have found, the evidence-based for most formal risk assessment tools that are designed to predict the risk of harm, the risk of future harm to oneself or to others is pretty poor. And therefore, the current advice is to focus on providing health and support in a timely fashion to those who need it, rather than being influenced by flawed risk assessment tools. If that's the case for most risk assessment tools in psychiatry, then it must be true of any risk assessment tool that's specifically intended to prevent the risk of future acts of terrorism. What we've tried to do is make psychiatrists especially aware of this. Now, as this review finds, and as the Royal College of Psychiatrists position statement makes clear, there just isn't robust evidence that people with mental illness are more likely to engage in acts of terrorism. Perhaps there are studies that show association, but as the review has stated quite clearly, association is not causation. And as I say, perhaps there are studies, I don't know. However, this idea that 
having a mental illness predisposes one to committing acts of terrorism or, or even increases one's risk of engaging in acts of terrorism merely serves to further incre increase stigma for certain communities and sections of society. Now, we also noted in our ethics guidance back in 2016 that there was perhaps a risk of any form of dissent then being seen as extremism. Surely in this country, in this day and age, people have to be able to express views that don't agree with prevailing political views without running the risk of being deemed to be extremist. Now, I note the finding in this review that people with mental illnesses are disproportionately more likely to be referred to prevent. Is this surprising? Sadly, not at all. Is this troubling? Deeply, deeply, deeply so. The idea that having a mental illness somehow predisposes an individual to commit an act of terrorism, however, appears to have taken hold in popular imagination, sadly. This isn't helped by the lurid reporting and speculation that breaks out in certain parts of the media after every terrorist event. You only have to go to get onto Twitter um, after, after any such act. But this finding that people with mental illnesses or people who are in contact with mental health services are more likely to be referred to prevent, if this is the case across the land, it's a really important wake up call for all of us and especially for those of us working in mental health services. Our patients can be some of the most marginalized and disadvantaged people in society. And I would suggest that we would forget um, our own ethical, clinical and professional duty to them at our own peril. Now, as a forensic psychiatrist who has spent many, many years working with adolescents and adults in, in a variety of secure settings, I'm the first one to agree that we are members of society ourselves, those of us who work in mental health services, and that our duty of care is never only limited to the individual before us in clinic. There is a wider societal imperative on us as it is on all of us. However, we must be wary indeed of what may well be creeping securitization of our services. So while psychiatrists as members of society should and do have a duty to do their part to keep us all safe, I'm not for a second arguing against that. We also have a duty, I believe, to question and challenge these sorts of um, arrangements and duties. Psychiatrists must do what they are trained to do, which is to assess, diagnose and treat mental disorder look after and help people, and we must act within our areas of expertise, and we must be very mindful of the impact of our acts on others. Now, I'm going to finish by just making this, this plea, I suppose. I know that one defense of prevent sometimes is that when some people with mental illnesses or disorders have been referred to prevent, they've then been able to access mental health input uh, because of that referral when they otherwise might not have been able to do so. While that's excellent, I would so prefer, as would every one of my colleagues, I would so much prefer to be able to offer input, help and support to people who need it without having to put them through a referral to prevent myself. So on that note, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mira. That was super interesting. And especially just knowing how, you know, you know the ins and outs really of how this policy kind of functions within the psychiatry. Um, and it's just great to hear you talk about it and talk about kind of challenge the whole premise of of prevent itself you know saying that there must be the possibility or space for a dissent and yeah i'm just very glad that you've brought that up um so thanks very much um and so i feel like it leads on quite well to Roz, 
um, because I'm sure Roz has thought a lot about this kind of issue of, yeah, of people coming through the criminal justice system or coming through Prevent or other services to access wider services as well. So I'm um, just going to move on to you now, Roz, from Liberty. So um, thanks very much. Thanks, Reem. And um, I'd also like to share my thanks with Hilary and the All Medac team um, for inviting me and for publishing such an excellent report. Um, I thought I'd just share some reflections on two different issues. Um, first of all, the impact of PREVENT on civil liberties and human rights, um, specifically as regards the impact of the PREVENT duty and the referral structures that we've been discussing. Um, and secondly, the parallels that we see in PREVENT um, and other sectors, um, drawing on Liberty's vantage point as a civil liberties organisation that works across a lot of different um, home affairs areas. Um, this is something that's been touched upon by Hillary and Tarek. Um, and so I, and I think it's really important to draw out some of those parallels and see where the points of solidarity between different areas that have been um, maybe quite siloed is. Um, so in terms of the impact of prevent on civil liberties, um, issues with prevent um, which is developed in the report is the definition of extremism um, so the definition of extremism under prevent is vocal or active opposition to British values that's incredibly vague um, and it's been deployed in ways which are really concerning from a human rights perspective um, and as prevent has been expanded it's being expanded into the private sector expanded into the family courts um, that this fundamental issue with the definition of extremism under prevent um, has never been addressed and is compounded with the vagueness of the indicators um, of extremism and the other markers which other panelists have pointed to already. Um, and why that definition is concerning is that it casts dissent um, or speech or conduct or behaviour um, that challenges orthodoxies or, um, as dangerous rather than an essential part of critical inquiry. Um, and how we've seen that deployed is to capture protected political speech, um, so activism on Palestinian rights, for example, climate change activism, um, protected religious expression. So um, there's been documented case of a woman being um, subject to questioning under prevent for beginning to wear a hijab, um, as well as entirely innocuous behaviour. So Liberty represented the family of two young children um, age six and eight who were questioned under prevent um, for playing with a toy gun um, and the local authority in that case when Liberty threatened legal action admitted that they wouldn't have subjected the kids to that kind of questioning if those kids were white. Um, and so this has a chilling effect on the exercise of fundamental rights, expression, association, freedom to manifest religious belief. Um, and um, this has been evidenced by studies which show that um, it leads to a very pernicious form of self-censorship. Um, so one study by a professor at SOAS, um, Professor Scott Bowman, found that um, students, particularly Muslim students on university campuses, were choosing not to manifest um, their religious beliefs, not to exercise political expression, um, by re not deciding not to take certain books out of the library or engage in student activism or attend spaces that were cast as suspicious. 
um, for fear for, of being labelled as an extremist and, and stigmatised. So that's really concerning from a civil liberties perspective. The second issue, which I've alluded to already, is, is the discriminatory impact of PREVENT. Um, as the report details and as um, we're all familiar with, um, PREVENT disproportionately impacts Muslim communities um, and communities of colour um, who are perceived to be Muslim. And PREVENT, as initially conceived, was directed to explicitly target Muslims and then has kind of been superficially expanded to apply to other groups. Um, and, you know, as Tarek has set out, um, often in defence of PREVENT, um, people will point to its um, increasing application to far-right extremism. And of course, that can't be deployed to shield the policy from the charge of structural racism. Um, but also expanding a policy to kind of cast more communities as suspect doesn't justify um, measures which target people for what they are perceived to think and believe. Um, and parent like, like, um, like policing in general is, is racialized and it's, it's classed as well. Um, the third kind of human rights and civil liberties issue I wanted to speak about was the kind of co-op dynamic of co-option and how the prevent duty specifically co-ops public sector workers um, to effectively act as the long arm of the police um, and gather intelligence on people. Um, and this is, you know, expanded on in great detail in the report, so I won't we won't pause on it for too long, but we share concerns that this undermines relationships of trust between teachers and students, um, doctors and patients, social workers and, and um, their clients. Um, and we share concerns about how tensions between the prevent duty on the one hand and duties of confidentiality and safeguarding, which in essence have materially different aims to what the prevent um, strategy is hoping to achieve. Um, and I think how we see this manifest from a human rights perspective is not only difficulty in terms of accessing services, but also the quality of service people receive um, and, you know, what they might be willing to share in particular settings for fear of their details being effect passed to the police. Um, and I echo um, what Mayura and Tarek have said about, you know, how often prevent referrals ultimately being passed to a different service is sometimes pointed to as a marker of success. But what that completely overlooks is how that engagement has been securitized and the harm that causes not only to people's identity, which is a fundamental element of um, the right to privacy, the right to private life, um, but also really tangibly, people's data is passed to the police under this strategy and kept in a centralized database. Um, and I'll, I'll touch on that next, but I think that harm has to be borne in mind. Um, and so in terms of data under prevent, um, campaigners and people impacted by PREVENT had long been concerned about data collection and storage and retention sharing under PREVENT. Um, and last year, Liberty did a series of FOIs um, which revealed that there was a centralized PREVENT database um, a which kind of swept up and captured all referrals under PREVENT. Um, and this really challenges the characterization of PREVENT as a safeguarding mechanism built on safeguarding principles and it sharpens concerns about it being a, a police-led strategy. Um, and what, what we found out um, from those FOIs was that any referral the police receive, no matter how malicious, misguided or misinformed, that is included on the database. 
Um, people are often included without their knowledge or their consent. Um, and that makes it immensely difficult to challenge your inclusion on that database if you don't know you're on it. Um, and third, another thing that we find out from this FOIs was that there's no definition of a referral. Um, so, you know, a teacher or a healthcare provider um, could call the police to ask for advice and the police could define that as a referral. So people could be unwittingly referring people to prevent. Um, but there are still things that we don't know. So we don't know for sure how long data is held for, um, what exact purposes it's used for and who it's shared with. Um, and I read with immense concern in, in Medac's report um, that via FOIs they'd found instances of prevent data being passed to the Home Office and used for immigration enforcement purposes, um, potentially exposing people to, to detention or even deportation. And I think that's a really fundamental challenge to any attempt to characterize this as a safeguarding policy. Um, depending on how much time I have, I'll just briefly um, speak to some of the parallels um, between prevent and some of the other kind of areas that Liberty works on. And I think um, it's really important to see these so that we can challenge the logics and structures that underpin these policies and practices and build solidarity between organizations resisting and working on these policies um, and share kind of strategies and tactics. Um, since I have 1.5 minutes, um, I will just outline two of these things, which is first, um, two kind of broad themes that we see replicated across different areas. So the first is the kind of preemptive nature of prevent, um, which has already been discussed, you know, prevent operating in the, the pre-criminal space, which is kind of central to its logic and structures. And we see this in, in many other areas, you know, in policing, we see an increasing attempts to blur the boundaries between civil and criminal law with measures like gang injunctions or knife crime prevention orders. Um, which are imposed based on the civil standard of proof, um, not a criminal standard, um, on children as young as 12, um, and can impose really onerous conditions on those children. Um, and if they're breached, that's a criminal offence. Um, and those are, you know, it, the, the similarity that you draw there is the kind of identifying people as risky, um, often based on highly racialized concepts, you know, like the gang or, or coded proxies for race or class, like the music people listen to or the clothes they wear, and using that to impose really punitive conditions on them. Um, and the police have been doubling down on that approach. Um, you know, we've documented the use of predictive policing algorithms, um, which kind of run, run the, that data analysis through, program, to, through computer programs to give them a warranted legitimacy, but are still based on those the same and suffer from the same structural problems as we see in prevent and in and policing in general. Um, I might just, one last point that I really want to make room um, is just the outsourcing um, of kind of these control functions to public services. And Reem, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, the kind of mirroring around the hostile environment, which is kind of embedded border controls. And I think similarly there, we see this really diffuse network of service professionals tasked with implementing this policy. Um, but control remains very centralized. Um, and that's what we see in prevent as well. You know, when you look at the right to rent under the hostile environment, 
private landlords are tasked with checking the immigration status of people who seek to rent property, um, but control is ensured by the existence of a criminal offence um, for landlords who fail to do that. Um, and that's a pattern we see mirrored in the operation of Prevent and is, is immensely concerning. Great, thank you, Roz. Um, and yeah, I hate being the person who has to hurry people up, but that's my role as chair. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you so much to all the amazing speakers. It's a shame we're not like in some big hall so that we, you know, I think that you guys definitely deserve it, um, you know, to be clapped right now because, um, yeah, it's just been so informative. We've had a lot of comments saying that people have learned a lot from the talks and there's been a lot of questions so far. Um, so just a reminder, um, so we're going to move into the Q&A bit of the um, session now. We might run over by about by five minutes or so. Um, so as I said, please do write your questions in the Q&A box, which is at the bottom of your screen. Um, and we do have quite a few questions already. So if you do write a question, it doesn't mean that it will definitely get asked. Um, and I will be taking three questions at a time. And depending on how long it takes, um, we might get two rounds of questions. So I just wanted to also put a plea into the panelists to make your responses to the questions as concise as possible so that we can respond to as many questions as possible. Um, so uh, yeah, if you have a question directed at a particular panelist, please indicate in your question that you'd ask, like to ask that person. So I have seen that happen already. Um, and if you are sending in a question, um, if you're sending in a question through the Q&A box function, there is actually a, you know, there is a box that you can tick that I see many people have to say that you'd like to send your question anonymously if that's, if you so wish. Um, yeah, so I am going to begin um, with some questions and just to say thank you very much to the 100 people who've stuck around until now. Um, so I'm just going to begin with some questions that have come from the box. So I'm going to read three out and then I'll pass it on to the panelists to respond to. So um, the first question is, um, what surprised you the most about the field work and what are the most important consequences of your work with the caveat that this person hasn't read the full report? Um, so I, I guess that one is maybe aimed most at, at Hillary. Um, and then another question is, could you please elaborate about the ethical concerns about the vulnerability support hubs? Who, if anyone, is raising questions about this? Um, again, for seems to be aimed at Hillary, but I'm sure others will have something to say about this too. And then another question um, to uh, Mayora. Do you agree, and this one's by um, Shazad Amin, so do you agree that there's now sufficient evidence for the Royal College of Psychiatrists Ethics Committee to make a clear statement that PREVENT has no place in the NHS on ethical grounds? Um, so yeah, I'll just pass that over to you guys. And if you want me to repeat anything, just let me know. Maybe Hilary, did you want to start with that first question? Sure. Um, so the first question was, um, what surprised surprised us most about doing the field work? Um, yeah, that is an interesting question. I, I guess uh, 
Tarek's already mentioned the obstacles to researching um, this area, and that wasn't a surprise. We know that anything uh, to do with national security is mired in secrecy. Um, um, I think one thing that did surprise me was how ill-informed um, uh, many people are, and that's not to place the blame on health, because at all there's been a mire of misinformation um, at the heart of uh, prevent training. I mean, we, we, we say in the chapter on confidentiality that the policy is basically reliant on confusion to survive. Um, you see some health workers, including the president of a prominent royal college, saying, oh, but I think you shouldn't ask for consent to refer because it's about public protection. Other people understand that it's being classified at least, legitimately or not, we think probably not, as safeguarding. And therefore, as any health worker would tell you, good safeguarding is consensual safeguarding. You should ask for consent, as Mayura described. At the very least, you should inform the person that isn't that isn't happening. So it did it did surprise us. Um, we hope that our report contributes to the body of other work um, that, that that it builds on in uh, you know creating greater awareness and hopefully mobilising um, you know some more resistance from the health community. Uh, to this to this harmful policy so I don't know if anyone else wants to add or should I go should I answer the second one and then pass, pass one room or what yeah I think so that's all right okay so yeah the most important consequences what just to be brief um I mean yeah I think I just get what I just said about we we need I think Tarek emphasized this really eloquently you know we need to see um action I think from from the health community um I think the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the coronavirus, racial inequalities we're seeing mean that, you know, the, the time is now to act on, on racism in healthcare. And, and it's encouraging to see lots of people talking about that. Prevent is a key element of that. And so um, uh, that's, I think, the most important consequence. Yeah. Um, in terms of vulnerability support hubs, just quickly, not enough people are raising concerns about it yet. There is one academic article by a, a scholar called Rita Augustad. Kunsten, uh, which referenced in the report, um, but it's little very know there's one article in Reuters and no nothing else in the media. So um, we'd like to see um, mental health charities like Mind. We'd like to see the Royal Psych College of Psychiatrists as well raising more more concerns. I think so. I'll leave it there. Thanks. I wonder if um, did anyone on the panel want to kind of speak to that point about the vulnerability support hubs, like what kind of concerns there might be about its existence. I was just going to mention maybe perhaps one thing, um, because I think it's it's not only about prevent now, and I think uh, Rosie did a really fantastic job sort of highlighting across uh, various policies and strategies. And one of the things that we're seeing uh, within neoliberal forms of governance is really psychologizing all social and political ills, right? Because it's seen as a benign force. Oh, it's better to sort of always <laughs> inject mental health or uh, psychological rhetoric upon an individual rather than to sort of penalize them somehow. Uh, but that is highly problematic in, in, in many different ways. I think it's just important to absolutely recognize this. And I think uh, mental health professionals, I think one of the things that we really need to do is politicize mental health. You know, it can't be seen as this apolitical, you know, uh, pill that we can just somehow inject into everything. You know, there is there is, uh, there are, there's a political contingency to always saying, well, look, you know, we don't have to deal with poverty 
you know, we can just increase austerity, you know, and then somehow make sure that so people still feel good after, you know, and there's other ways in which uh, social and political issues are increasingly psychologized. Um, and this is something I'm personally very interested in, in writing about. So uh, I think there's a lot of people who are picking up on this, especially right now across policies. And I think we shouldn't just focus on prevent on this as well. Thank you. Um, did anyone want to come in on that question? Or perhaps Mayura? Uh, yes, th th thank you, Reem. And that last point that Tarek just made, just to, just to, just to add to that, um, we've noted with a lot of interest the change in language from the, 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 the 2011 contest document to the 2015 Counterterrorism and Security Act document with the latter very much psychologizing things. We've noted with interest that the language in the 2015 Act is very much more aligned to that of safeguarding, talks about supporting and safeguarding the vulnerable uh, talks. Uh, and I think it goes on to say at one point that um, safeguarding is at the heart of prevent. <sighs> yes. Um, and. Yes, the, the, the question, I think that was directed at the Ethics Committee. Um, it had been our intention to go back and review the ethics guidance, because as I say, we wrote it in 2016-17, and that's, that's several years ago now. But of course, we were also expecting the independent evaluation of PREVENT to have been published by now, the report of. I mean, and that um, cl clearly hasn't become available yet. Um, so I, as I say, I think later this year, we will still go back and look at the ethics guidance and see if it needs updating. I suspect it will need updating. Thanks. Great, thank you. Um, so I might move us on to the next round of questions then. Um, so I've got a question here. It's directed at Tariq, but I think also like other panelists should have something to say about this. Could you please define color blindness and how this manifests within healthcare spheres through referrals to prevent? Um, so that's the first question. Another question um, from Hosnia Jafari Marbini, which is actually two questions. Um, how do individual how can individual NHS workers who want to boycott the training? So how can they do that? And how can we campaign for big institutions to do the same? And are there any human rights cases being worked on that might support this? Um, so that's the second question. Well, two questions really. Um, and then finally, this one I think is, is quite a quick one maybe um, from Shazad Amin again. Is it lawful for public bodies like NHS trusts to refuse to, dis to disclose prevent referral data? Um, so I'm sure for those of you who've been involved with, you know, doing freedom of information requests, this question applies to you guys. Um, so yeah, I guess, so we'll start off with that question about, about color blindness. So I wonder, Tarek, do you want to start us off and then we can go to others as well? Sure. Um, so I think that's a great question. I think for many people, color blindness can be a little bit confusing. I can recommend the book, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and she talks about the mass criminalization of, of black of the black population in the United States. I mean, colorblindness, if you want an analogy, it's simply just saying 
you know, you just tell cops to go out and look for drug users and drug dealers, right? And you're, you're, you're presuming that, you know, and such as things like whatever terrorism are just generic concepts, you know, that they're not inherently racialized. And that's what I was trying to explain in terms of the, the, the social conflict ex itself. The war on terror could not exist without uh, a society in which there is a racial hierarchy. Uh, and that's really, really significant to, 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 to really emphasize. So if you tell cops, go out, okay, look, look, go, go look out for drug dealers. Um, you know, what, what a politician can say is that, you know, I'm not racist, you know, I'm just telling them to go look out for, for drug dealers. And if it just happens to, to, to lead into a mass incarceration of, of black people, well, you know, that's what it is. But I never told the cops to go look out for, for, for black people, you see? And that colorblind rhetoric whereby race is either diminished or rendered insignificant, especially in training, and I'm really highlighting training here, whereby it's, it's really quite significant. Um, Prevent has, uh, is, is, I mean, in terms of the training experiences, many of the people I spoke with in my research, they experience prevent training among at least um, the majority of, uh, of racialized Muslim um, NHS staff that I spoke with. They all experienced it as racist. Now you have to ask yourself, how can a training be experienced as racist if it's not being said overtly, right? And this is that concept of colorblindness whereby it's not about make, it's not about these sort of explicit, um, you know, for forms of verbal uh, abuse or designations that this is, you know, terrorism is about Muslims or whatever, that actually comes out still nonetheless, but it's about denying the fact that, hey, the war on terror is commonsensically associated with Muslims and Islam. And this, this, this has a long history, especially within, um, within, West, within the Western world. I mean, Hegel and Voltaire spoke about uh, Muslims as, you know, uh, as, 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 as people who um, are, are fanatics, you know? And I think we need to recognize, we have to take these sort of historical and sociological realities into consideration. We can't just take this very apolitical, ahistorical, view on a policy. And that's why when it became a statutory duty, I mean, that is, that is a quintessential ahistorical, asocial uh, implementation of a policy that does not at all recognize the racialization of certain concepts. Great, thank you. Um, do any of the other speakers wanna come in on specifically on the point of color blindness and how it functions within health services or or elsewhere within society i mean i would just echo what Tarek said essentially um we had some really interesting responses from health workers um declining to take part and one of whom is quoted in the um in the report anonymously sort of saying i don't think it would be useful to speak to me because um where i work now you know the nature of the population is uh, i can't remember the exact wording of it but basically saying there aren't any ethnic minorities here it doesn't really apply. Um, uh, likewise, um, people pointing out that even though they work in very like ethnically homogenous um, areas, uh, prevent training was still deemed very applicable to them. So even while pointing that out, they're still acknowledging and re reinforcing that normative association 
with, uh, with uh, communities of color, um, which as Tarek says, is inherent to the, the war on terror. Um, is, there's this racial subject, sub, subtext running throughout it. Um, just to add as well that like, um, we use this parallel of stop and search, as Tarek said, you, you know, people are being sent out and told to look for Muslims, but they draw on um, images of popular culture, and they operationalize these vague categories like extremism in ways that are informed by dominative, domin dominant narratives around um, risk. And the more discretion they have to do that, and they're basically literally explicitly being told, trust your instinct, then um, again, it's, it's not to blame the health workers themselves. This is such a ridiculous, um, absurd kind of and dangerous task they're asked to be doing to spot pre-terrorists. That's kind of the inevitable um, outcome. Yeah, I'll say that. Great, thank you. Um, so just going to move us on to the next question. Um, so this question, so there was quite a few questions in the box about, you know, how can we kind of campaign against this or how can we support health workers who maybe want to campaign or um, challenge prevent at all. Um, so I, I actually might like, I'm going to just give this question over to Mayura and also to Roz just to talk about this maybe more broadly, um, but also just to say that at MedAct, you, later on before we close, I'm going to say that we're hoping to, to begin working on this. So um, I'll just pass on to, to one of you um, to respond to this. And no pressure to respond if you feel like you don't ha have anything to say. Oh, I, uh, th thank you, Reem. I, I suppose I would say that for, from a clinical perspective, as a, as, as a clinician, I think the key thing for individual clinicians in the course of their work is to be entirely aware at each point the, the, the ethical traps that there are within, within this. Um, and that really is the point of us writing very specific ethics guidance and then promoting it and doing talks and so on and so forth with our, with our colleagues and with services. Uh, in terms of what wider action one can take, I can't really comment as a clinician, but as a member of the community, as, as a person who's part of the community and is affected by all of this, um, I, I suppose it's a, it's a very positive sign that you know, over 100 people have joined this evening um, and that there will be many others who will read the report, I have no doubt, and there will be many, many more others who will look at the recommendations of this report and go back and ask questions. I think the key thing for me is, or the, the key thing from the review itself is that, is, is, the, is, the, is the lack of awareness out there. I think prevent training can be, can be seen as very innocuous. You know, it's half an hour of your life. Well, so what? You sort of squeeze it in between clinics. And the implications of it, I think, can perhaps not be obvious to people. So, I, you know, the first task for me, I think, is, is raising awareness, which, which you're doing. Uh, and then the next task, I suspect, is to ask questions and challenge. Great, thank you, Mayora. And Roz, um, I, I also forgot about the second part of that question, um, which was, you know, are there ongoing kind of human rights or legal cases um, around prevent? Um, so yeah, if you wanted to just like speak to that. Yeah, um, I think um, on the kind of general question about resisting prevent and how how we can do that i think one of the prevent in that it does co-opt 
teachers, doctors, nurses, social workers, um, to implement this policy is also this window of opportunity for campaigning because it brings um, brings different professionals who aren't necessarily comfortable with these services being kind of infected with the logics of counterterrorism um, and aren't comfortable with, you know, this system set up where um, there's this pathway to just pass details to the police in the way that prevent is structured. Um, and I think there's been phenomenal campaigning work around this, particularly kind of student activism and in teachers unions to try and galvanize some of those kind of um, groups to put their concerns on the record and, and raise their concerns with this strategy and say, no, this isn't, this isn't how this should be structured um, and, and actually say, you know, there needs to be this kind of bright line between our services and these services that we're working in and those kind of structures of an enforcement and control. Um, and I think there's enormous opportunity to do that more in, in healthcare and to start building resistance um, at a really grassroots level. Um, and, and between the different sectors that prevent co-ops. I think there's been a lot of kind of voices, but there hasn't been a kind of campaign that brings all of those together. Um, I think in terms of whether there's any ongoing human case of prevent, um, I think it's immensely challenging to, given how prevent operates and what prevent does and how it kind of serves to silence people and label people as you know kind of the object of state control it's very difficult understandably for people to want to take a case um in their name especially when you know we have the majority of or kind of a disproportionate number of children being referred to this um it's, it's very difficult to um to kind of to get those kind of cases off the ground but there are there are cases which have which have challenge and successfully challenge aspects of the strategy and how it operates. Um, I think one thing that I pick up on as well, um, which Hilary and, and Tarek touched on in terms of difficulty doing research on prevent. Um, and, um, you know, Hilary mentioned it, it is in, in the kind of national security area. Um, there's a real paucity of transparency, but I think there are very basic things which haven't been disclosed. You know, the report mentions um, uh, kind of the faith and, you know, religious belief of people who've been referred to prevent. Um, there's bizarre categorizations like people under 20 rather than children, which would be the normal way to categorize the data. Um, so it's not properly disaggregated. And then there's been kind of expanding categorizations in, in those reports around people who have mixed or unstable ideology, which never been properly explained. So I think the data quality is a real issue. And that's, again, something that I see across the work that I do on policing, you know, powers that have been on the statute books for decades. There's a real inadequacy in the data that's released. And that has implications for um, the kind of ability to debate and discuss these policies, but also hold the authorities to account. And it's particularly concerning when there's such um, serious evidence of disproportionate use against particular communities. Great, thank you so much, Roz. Um, so I think we're gonna have to wrap up there.
Thank you for listening. You can find the full report on the Medac website. And if you want to find out about future Medac events, please sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails.